Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemoration, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Perton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The Study Group for Minority History is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Olena Palko, the co-convener of the study group, and today I will be talking to Professor Morgan Labet at the, e, uh, at the EHESS in Paris and a senior research fellow at the Polish Institute of Advanced Studies in Warsaw. Um, Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in Central and Eastern Europe? So, uh, first of all, thank you very much for these invitations. And uh, I'm very glad to, to give uh, an account about my research and interest in this Central and Eastern European history. So I will develop the, the issue of my interest because of course, everybody asks me, why are you interested in Eastern Europe as a French historian? So it's a long way. So initially, I must say my interest was mainly in the German, for the German history and come, came from early contacts with Germany, with the German language that I learned in the college, in the school travels. So I am in a, in a way the third or the two second generation uh, of the French-German politics reconciliation of the post-war. And then in my studies and my university career, this interest east of the, the Rhine, east of France, shifted eastward to Central and Eastern Europe under two events, we know them, that were on one side the collapse of the communist regime and on the other side the resurgence of nationalisms in Eastern Europe. So it was an European event and turmoil. And I must say, I try, I try to, to, to think about it. And in a short time, the issue of nation, nationalism took in France a new and a growing place in the social science. And especially in France, where the national nationalisms were topic, not to, topic at all, were really absent. Uh, even in the political science, I, I was thinking social classes were, were really the, 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 the dominant category and, uh, and there is no place to think about nation and nationalism in the social science. But because of the, the two events, the, the landscape, uh, the, the academic landscape changed very quickly. And I remember, uh, for instance, one book released, the book of Ernest, Ernest Gellner, National Nationalism. It was a success and it was very quick translated into French. You can imagine uh, of the, the, the audience of the readers. And I remember also, in, I was also studying ethnology and there was a course, a lecture on national nationalisms given by a professor of an older generation. I don't know why he decided to create, to open this, this seminar. And we were just a few students, but we were completely fascinating because he decided to introduce us to the fundamental text, not only Ernest Gellner, but before the, the ignored, the forgotten uh, fundamental text of Hans Kuhn, Renan, Stuart Mill, Max Weber. At the same time, there is new, uh, new literature and national nationalisms from the uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, countries. He decided to, uh, to, to remind us there were texts in the past. And it, it belonged to the 
older generation. He translated Max Weber, I don't remember exactly. He was training philosophy. So it was really a luck for us to be introduced to this uh, text. And he went back, I remember the first um, session, the etymology of nation, natio in Greek, and nation, he gave us a text to read, really to, to feel it really as a concept in history. So it was really a fascinating um, a course, and it gave me a, suddenly a, um, a new insight in political philosophy and political South. So, so it was a, a really a, a change in social science. But in this period too, precisely the, the polarity put forward by our school between the cultural nation and the political nation, this conceptual with the ideal type of the French nation and the German nation was called into question because Hans Kuhn was really, he, he decided to, to, to build his, mod, his model. Uh, it was just during and after the, the Second World War. He wanted to understand what's going on with the, the German history. And it was, uh, and 40 years uh, later, four decades later, this strong first attempt to, to give concept of the different definition of nation in Europe was also called into question, uh, in particular with a, with a work like Ernest Gellner, a, a European or worldwide uh, book of uh, Roger Brubaker about uh, the, the two models of the French and the German citizenship, the political and the more uh, cultural and by, um, by heritage filiation. And uh, the book, Brubaker's book had also um, a strong echo in, in the French uh, academic. And it gave an impulse to, to the work of French historians, uh, not to discuss this opposition, but to discuss the so-called um, undisputable French citizenship. And there, there was a still living historian, Gérard Noiriel, he gave a new, um, uh, a new definition, a new insight of the so-called uh, political citizenship of, the, of, of France. And it reveals evident how uh, in some time there's a Vichy government or the, in the colonial perspective, there were also in the, the French citizenship uh, elements of, um, of ethnic origin uh, taking into account. So there was also criteria like uh, different uh, origins. So, so it was so uh, suddenly in, a, in, in within um, five years, maybe, uh, an emulating new context uh, for, uh, for scholarship. I would say uh, empirical as a theoretical, a multidisciplinary context, because all the social science were concerned by the issue. Um, sociology, anthropology, history, political science, there were books everywhere. And it's, of course, it encouraged the students that, like me, to, towards uh, these new fields, to, um, to investigate this, uh, this field. And I was also uh, studying demography and population statistics in that time. And I discovered, uh, it, was, it was a critical decade, I must say, everywhere. <laughs> and I discovered in the, in the library of the, the Statistical Institute, all the collection of the uh, population census of Europe. So there is a, a, a circulation during the 19th century and then in the 20 between the statistical office. And there were all the collections just at hand and just opened the census of Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. And we can see it was full of tables with national categories. So a wonderful uh, source to investigate. So this is uh, the beginning of my, uh, my interest. So this is a way, and then I I didn't let uh, let <laughs> the road. <laughs> I, I stay on the road. Uh, let me perhaps uh, just build uh, build upon of what you just said and ask you about the uh, role of statisticians and maps uh, in the nation building in Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, I would perhaps restructure a little bit our conversation, but I think it grows very well 
uh, you know, on what you just said on those uh, population statistics that uh, you just found and discovered in um, in Paris when you started being interested in in this region. Um, so I was just uh, wanted to ask you um, about the evolution of scientific knowledge in the imperial context. And, um, and one of the major events uh, of the late 19th century was the unification of Germany in 1871. And then we have uh, obviously um, after, the, after the Second World War, the new nation state. Uh, but what role did statistics play in the process of political consolidation of major European empires before the First World War? Uh, before, you mean, okay. Yeah. Um, you mean the, the, the role of statistics in the imperial context? Yes. Okay. Um, so, I have, um, in fact, I know little about the history of, um, of science in, in imperial context. Uh, because it's a very large field, but for my own research, um, at the beginning, I was not uh, look interesting, especially in the uh, imperial statistic. I was more interesting in the rule and the power of statistic in state building. But because of the empirical materials that I gathered, mainly from the Austrian, the Prussian census, I uh, I discovered. Um, how um, the imperial context uh, was impo important. And I, um, I, I discover a difference, uh, a significant uh, differences between just the, the German, the, the Prussian uh, statistics in the, of the 19th century and the Austrian statistic in the same, exactly in the same times. Uh, uh, while usually uh, because it's just the so-called uh, German uh, space of Europe, they are both considered as uh, the same. But uh, actually there are very significant difference. And I, in, in my research, in my book, and emphasized in particular what I call an, an imperial model of statistics. Um, and I try to, to define it, uh, I would say empirical, with the materials, the statistics, the census, and the maps. There were maps in the imperial uh, statistic. Uh, while in the national uh, Prussian statistics, there are no maps, maybe one, but maps are not belonging to statistics. So the imperial model of national or ethnic statistics is the following. It is a, not a quantitative statistic or little quantitative. It's more a narrative, a text, textual statistic, but it is above all a taxonomic, a classificatory statistic, and also topographical. The, the, the geographical, the spatial dimension is always important, so the map. And statistic is not only um, made up of a table, it's, uh, I could say, by the example of the Austrian statistic I just developed afterwards, uh, there is a map, there is a books, this is his, the historical dimension, dimension, and there are tables. So the books is um, a narrative, and um, the, 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 the table, these are uh, the, um, this, some figures, but also words, classification, and the map, this is a spatial dimension. So we have sometimes three components that are uh, named statistics. And they are named in the Austrian tradition, not national statistics, not multinational statistics, not imperial statistics, but ethnographic. But in the mind of the Austrian statisticians, ethnographic is a, a title, is a, is a name, a word only for the empire. So this, uh, there were um, international congress of statisticians, and in one session, uh, the, uh, it was about. Uh, so in this congress, the statisticians uh, tried to standardize and unify the criteria and um, the, the, the category of statistics. 
And one is it was decided to discuss about uh, nationality as a criteria for the population census. And uh, in these discussions, the, the director, the head of the Austrian statistical office developed the project of what he called an ethnographical statistics. And at the end of his, his talk, he um, emphasized that this kind of statistic is very restricted that only for the empire, the Austrian, the Russian, and the Ottoman, it didn't apply to the other states. He refused to uh, apply, to extend, to open the, this ethnographic statistic to all the states. So it was quite a failure, and the issue was closed uh, at the international uh, level. So the, this uh, imperial model, uh, what is important in this imperial. So this imperial model, it's the importance is not to quantifying the strength of the empire, so the strength of a multinational empire, or to quantify one nation uh, by contrast to another one. But it is the issue, the concern is to represent, to, the, to, to represent in a classification or um, in a map, the nationalities as in the order of the things. So I use this expression in the order of the things, came from Foucault. It is a fixed um, classification. It is a fixed order, like in the, in the nature. So it's, it's fixed, it's stable. And this makes the empire uh, stable. So uh, like, a, like, like a painting. And this, this is the issue with this classification, to find a good classification. And then the classification is given, it is forever. Each nationality is in its place in the classification, each nationality is in its place in the map, in the space. And um, so, and this model, I explained the way I developed with my book, is, is complicated to, um, to, to define, but it, it has also an origin. It is um, actually a model developed in the 18th century. This is the Enlightenment, uh, when statistics became a discipline in the German university. And the Enlightenment statistics were absolutely not quantitative. It was uh, descriptive, it was taxonomic. This was the model of the science of the states, model of the uh, cameralisms, um, teach in this German university and then spread in Vienna or in Saint Petersburg. And then it was appropriated by these universities, and, uh, but it changed also. So in Germany, it became, this enlightenment statistic disappeared in the 19th century. The Prussian statistic became completely quantitative. No maps, no text, just numbers, criteria more their tongue and just to to dig, to calculate the proportion of the polish inhabitants to the german inhabitants so this kind of quantitative was already sort of, uh, this relation this um, this uh, number rela relation to measure the strength of the of each nations but you don't have but but this enlightenment model persisted, I don't want to say survival, because it was not a survival, but persisted in this imperial uh, co context. And so I developed my argument because I discovered it in the empirical uh, material and collection, a very monumental map, uh, which is now uh, known. This is uh, um, the ethnographic map of the Austrian monarchy, monarch made up by the uh, Karl von Zernig, so the head of the Imperial Statistical Office or in Vienna. So this is this statistical ethnographic map. It was made in the statistical uh, office. And this map was typical uh, of the neo-absolutism period in Austria. She, it was achieved in 1855, just uh, after the, the failure, the repression of the 1848 revolution. So it was like um, um, a response, a reaction 
of the uh, national movement of the uh, 1848 revolutions. Uh, instead of these claims uh, to be a, a nation uh, uh, with the first um, uh, this, this, this nation in movement, revolutions to, to, to ask for representation in a new parliament in Frankfurt, etc. It was a reaction. What is uh, multinational? It is just uh, something given in, in the map. Uh, it, it was really um, a fiction. This map is a fiction because it gives, it's very aesthetic, it's a beautiful and colorful. And as turning developed in the text, there is no nation dominant. They are like an equilibrium. Multinationality, it's just an equilibrium. So it's just a, a fiction after the, 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 the revolution. So, and as I qualify this statistic imperial because um, I didn't study a lot the Russian statistics because I didn't speak the language and with the, 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 the Russian too. But I found that in some times there was reference concerning books of a map of von Kippen for the government of St. Petersburg. And it was exactly the same principle. Uh, of map, text, ethnographic, and they corresponded each other. So uh, they, they became to the same uh, cultural and scientific uh, model. And then I read a little of the, 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 the works uh, about the, the Russian census um, of uh, Juliette Cadio and other scholars. And it, uh, I discovered that the, 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 the geographical dimensions, ethnographical expedition were always very close to the census. They, they all uh, work together when it comes to, uh, to count the population of the, of the empire. So that's the reason I, I think there is really a, an imperial uh, model. And I think also in the 20th century, uh, as far as I, I, I know through the works of Alan Bloom, etc., with the Soviet census, there were a lot of discussion about the list. It was important for the nation to be in the list, first of all. The, and even Stalin says the list will be cut hair, will be long as long as this or not. So there is the importance of the list. And you don't find anything with the list with the national uh, quantitative uh, population census. There is no list in the Prussian census. There is just categories, Polish, Mazurian, etc., Danish, that's all, and proportions, everywhere proportions. So it's completely different, different problem. And the point in my, in my book, uh, the, my argument, is that this imperial model didn't pre-existed. It was not a survivance, but it coexisted with a national model. And I conclude that both models were prevalent in Europe until the First World War, because they provided, they, like, they, were, they were like ideal, they provided the states, the other states, even out of Europe, with two different and possible ways of making up nationalities, classification of figures, uh, map, graphic, etc. And they give the, the state any states were interesting with the national issue uh, at the turn of the 20th century. They, they, they provided with a knowledge available, ready to be used for a national policies, because there is a lot of concern with borderlands, with assimilation, with exclusion, with colonial settlement. So it was just two models, and some states, states choose this way or they choose another way. So, so this is a, the this is my my argument. So they, they coexisted. So I hope I have answered to your question. Thank you. Just maybe to say to this, uh, based on my research, you know, I'm working on, on as you know, on, on the Soviet Union and, and Ukraine. And indeed, it seems to me, based on what you just said, there is a lot of continuity between the imperial and the Soviet tradition, at least in the 1920s, because the ethnographers were really very much engaged in the institutes of ethnographic uh, research and a lot of scholarly publication. This was really kind of the heyday of, of ethnography in the kind of Soviet context. So it makes me think indeed, like there are many more continuities that then, you know, we tend yes. to think uh, also in, in expertise in science. 
Um, uh, but I wanted to uh, continue, um, and um, most of your research focuses on the period of transition from empire to nation state in Eastern and Central Europe. How did the role of maps and census change in the context of nation states? What role did census play in ordering populations in interwar East Central Europe? And why every new nation state was so eager to invest in, in uh, cartography and demography? What were their political considerations? Okay, so uh, what did maps and census change in the context of nation states? Uh, I was um, beginning with, so, with 1919 in Europe, uh, so it was quite simple. There was one political model, the, the, the nation state, uh, which was promoted, not to say imposed, by the victorious uh, powers of the war uh, to the territories and population of East Central Europe. Maybe also with agreement with some national leaders, but it was completely imposed uh, already in the peace conference. There is no place for another model, even a federal, what we say a federal model, so a more liberal <laughs> imperial model, or I don't know, but. Uh, so, uh, so the role uh, of the maps and the census was completely in line uh, with this model. It was, uh, a, a, it, this model had a, a, a diplomatic uh, a recogni recognition. And uh, I just, uh, just uh, recall that uh, in the peace con con conference, it was, uh, there were all, already a, a lot of maps and statistics used in the experts committee, of course. Uh, it was also um, a fiction that uh, the maps would decide uh, about the new nation and their borders. But there were expert geographers mainly using a lot of statistics and maps. And uh, so they, they, pre, um, they, they, give, they open the, 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 the route. Uh, how to use uh, the, the, the statistics. So, so use the statistic in, in one way to legitimate, so not already, but here it's not to represent, it's just to legitimate the new nation state and its border by one principle, the, the majority uh, principle, the statistical majority, uh, like uh, used, there is like a confusion, confusion. It was the majority principle is also a political principle of democracy. The majority decides decision making by decision by majority, but they, they use it uh, like it's an objectivation. So it's not, uh, 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 we don't decide, the, the majority decides. So this is uh, the reign and the victory of uh, this kind of reasoning the objectivation for political purpose, of course, because you can build a lot of different majority according to the category you, you, you consider and the, the division and the, the borders. So this is first a rule of maps and, and census in the, in the new nation state. So, and then in, in the period in the 30s, there is an other, um, another rule of these uh, census and maps it is to be tools, I would say, to be instrument to conduct a policy, a national policy, especially in these eastern countries, very uh, still mixed country, I could say. So a policy of always the same, of assimilation, of colonization, of displacement or exclusion, in particular in, uh, in the, the borderlands. But, so I will develop a little to my arguments. I think that the first census, often they are ignored because they were conducted just after the war. So the, the figures, the results were not, uh, not very good. They were defective. And, uh, but uh, we as historians, we have to take seriously the first census because they are still belonging to the, to the first period, the imperial time, and they are uh, already in the in the new period. They are really, uh, uh, and they, they, how do I say, they, they capture something of the tra so the, tra the transitions. So the first census, um, they had also, so we don't have to forget it because the victories powers were still on the on the place, and the first census has to, to respect the treaties and minorities by granting them rights, representations, so political representations, and also 
before uh, statistical representations, because figure numbers decided about it. And so for all these reasons, the post-war census, the first one, were not very different from the pre-war ones. So if you see all these census, they were conducted in 1921, 1920, 1922. You find exactly, the pre this is a model of the pre-war. Maybe because the statistical office has no time to design a new questionnaire. And because, as far as I know, the Polish case, all the statisticians working in the new statistical office, they worked beforehand in the Austrian, the Galician office. So they, they just take their, their experience uh, in the Polish uh, office. So the, this is the same question quite about nation, so direct question about language, mother tongue, about religion, and the same exclusivity to reject bilingualism, to reject the possibility to declare two nations, uh, to the importance of language as a criteria. So there is quite, there is no, dif no, 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 no difference. But why these new states were uh, Nevertheless, uh, eager, uh, impatient to conduct a census just so close to the war, the war was devastating. Um, some, in some place, like in Poland, the, the border were not fixed. They were still fighting at the eastern border. Uh, some of the prisoners are still uh, on the way to come back. So the, the fate of some province were not yet decided because of the plebiscite. But in, Anyway, they decided to conduct a, 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 a census in this very bad condition. But because it was absolutely a, an important uh, operation, a symbolic operation, it was the first national census. Uh, so, of course, it had to legitimate the national foundation, but with the own numbers. Not only because until the first, this census, all the figures, the statistics about Eastern Europe came from the statistical office of the of Germany, of uh, Russia, of Austria, uh, uh, and all they were on the other side for the victories. It was it's very interesting to to read the discussion in the Paris Peace Conference. All the uh, English or French experts, American, were very um, not didn't know how to, to to work with these enemies' statistics. It was German statistics. We, we have only German statistics to decide the border of the new states. So it was like a paradox. And so, since for, at the point of view of the of the symbol, it was important for the states to to get their national numbers. So, and it was, of course, a symbolic institution. And um, to, it was, um, how can I say, it was a way to institute, to make the nation um, by the census. Eric Hobsbawm uh, emphasized the role of the census to, to make the, the nation in move, like um, the school, like the, the military. So, it is a mass movement in a way, because all the population is counted, is numbered. It is in the same data with the same question. And in a way, it's, it's with equality, all individuals counted for one. So everybody is participating. It's a participating at times with a, with a lot of a campaign, uh, with poster, you have to participate, etc. This is a, this is a, the symbol of the of the census, and it explains that the states decided to undertake it despite bad conditions. And uh, but you also um, address the issue of demography. You use the word, and I must say the demography is another issue. Demography was at that time. In, especially in the interwar period, a distinctive science of population, distinct of population statistics, and even for censuses. It has to do with reproduction, with natality, with mortality, with, with reproduction. And 
uh, in this interwar period, this uh, view, this conception of population, this quite bi biological conception uh, of population, took a major and a particular place, a new importance. And it has also an impact on the definition and the approach of the nation. It gives um, an increasingly vitalist and organic conception to the nations. We imbued with hygienist uh, and biological, also rational ideas uh, of the nation. And it is important also to, to, to address the issue of demography as far as we discuss of nation and nationalisms. But what, because what came uh, in the, this is a new national discourse that a populous nation, a large population, it's not enough as a condition uh, for a nation to be valued, to be a, a, a strong nation. The nation must be also as an, organ, an organism, healthy, vigorous, efficient. So, so it's, there, this, in, this, in this definition, demography is uh, an important science. So I will distinguish population statistics with the census, so the census is a source and an operation, and demography as a science, quite a bi biological science of population that also played a role during this period in these new states. We see it also with Romania, with Eugenis, the power of Eugenis. It was, there was really a, a, a national Eugenis as Marius Turda emphasized in Eastern Europe. This is with the aim to, uh, to consolidate the nations with some biological basis. So I don't know whether I am clear, but I think it's also important. So in this, I will use term demography really in this more restrictive uh, meaning direction. Uh, thank you. I wanted to continue um, by um, uh, talking perhaps a little bit more in detail uh, about some aspects of your research. Um, so as, as you also mentioned and in your publication, um, you, you show that the transformation from the world of empires to the world of nation after the First World War was not straightforward. And I want to ask you about the process of self-identification of the diverse population that found themselves as part of the new nation states. National indifference is a widely used concept to determine the nature of the region at, um, at the turn of the 20th century. And there are also attempts to use this concept, uh, concept to characterize the interwar period. Um, and in your research, you came to consider a category of Tutejci or the people from here in the interwar Poland. Could you tell us more about those Tutejci and how this category was transformed during the interwar period? Do you consider Tutejci to be so-called so, so indifferent of their uh, ethnic status or is there something else uh, to understanding uh, this process? Yes, thank you for your attention on my Tutejci uh, uh, ch uh, chapter, this, uh, this very uh, spe special uh, study uh, that I give about this micro category. Uh, so, the Tutejci, it was first, first of all for me, an enigmatic category of the uh, Polish census, the both of 1920, uh, 1921, and then again, it's enigmatic in 1932, the second uh, population census. An enigmatic category that emerged in the tables. And the categories, you have a national tables, and national belonging, or uh, national language, and all the national category, and suddenly one, Column is Tutaishi. And this is, just, this is just what I call a detail. I don't, I don't understand. And the detail, of course, they are always sometimes very important because here the detail of the table allows to enter what I say the census factory, the census making. It, with the Tutaishi, we can open the, a little door, a little window to enter, to open the, the black box of the census, because the census and all this table are like black box. They are completely closed. It's impossible to, be, to, to, to see what's going on behind the table. And thanks to such detail, 
anormal, contradictory. You can just open the curtain and look behind. Uh, so that was the first reason of my interest. And I must say also, uh, it's important to take into account that it's often forgotten that the history of censuses is, so historically, the censuses uh, were punctuated by such defects that disrupted the logic and mechanics of the census. So you have an always false declaration, under-declarations, omissions, and a lot of indeterminate answer. And when the indeterminate answer are too big, the statisticians decided to, to name the indeterminate. And yet there is one um, famous example, more recent, this is the Yugoslavian uh, uh, population census, when with the category of Yugoslavian that appear in the classifications, uh, it came up that maybe in the, the recensions of in the 70s, there were a growing uh, uh, number of uh, the populations that uh, didn't declare the, the national categories. They, they declared to be Yugoslavian or any, 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 something like that. But at the beginning, the, the population office, the statistical office, uh, codified, uh, gathered this uh, answer as indeterminate out of the category. But because the number was growing, they had to identify it, to name, the, to give a name, and they were Yugoslavian. So I don't know whether the indeterminate were before in, in Yugoslavian, but they changed it by Yugoslavian. They, it was not a national, but they used it. And in this, the next census, there were a, a growing number of people declaring themselves to be Yugoslav. So uh, it was typical also of this generation coming from mixed parents, for instance. They, were, they didn't feel comfortable to, with uh, the choice of to be Croatian, Serbian, and they say, to, so we are Yugoslavian, just like that. So this is an example how the, the census, the statisticians ma manage with the, the reality sometimes uh, wins against uh, the construction is, um, is stronger than the, the building of the statistics. So I was always um, attentive to such uh, enigma. But Tutaishi has also a translation. It's not only an indeterminate. So, and the translation is to be from here. I am from here. And so it's not so a surprise. Uh, this is uh, just an evidence of a local identities. And populations that identify themselves with the place where they are living, it, it came in other places too. Uh, it is why, what we call a local or a regional identification. And it's reckoned also today to, to meet such a reference, it uh, uh, answers, it's also a problem for the statistical office. So just take the, the Polish census when part of the population in the South declared to be Silesian, but also in French when the part of the population in Brittany declared to be Britons. And uh, they, they say, we identify with the, the, our region, our province. So it's, it is also a political um, manifestation. So it's, a, it's quite uh, uh, frequent. So Tutaishi, I would say, belong to this kind of uh, identification at, at first. For me, it's not such a, a surprise. But it's surprising because why didn't they give us particular lo localities? They could say we are from Bolesia, I don't know, but I'm from here, so it is a, a relative identity. I'm from here now, but uh, after I'm from here <laughs> and another place. So this is a relative identity. But it, the anthropologist has, has found such identities also in other countries' lands. It's not uh, impossible. impossible. I would have said, I would say too, that there were cert certainly uh, in Eastern Europe, so in this Polish census, other communities, population that reported this kind uh, of belonging. For instance, in the first Polish census, I just read it in the 
in the text or in the archives, a part of the population in Galicia decided to declare to be Galician, to react, uh, to be against uh, the, Poland, we are Galician, we are not, not Polish, but uh, it was not published. So, of course, uh, we see that uh, uh, um, the, one of, re of the reasons of uh, the, the category in the publication is political. So, uh, Tutaishi has no such a political importance. Uh, it's, it's quite nothing. So, Galician has a, mean, a political meaning. Tutaishi has no political uh, meaning. So, my, 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 my work with Alistair uh, demonstrative, and I said there is a puzzle, an enigma, and it's twofold. First of all, the puzzle, what is the populations that didn't declare a national ethnic belonging in that time where national belonging was so important? How could they uh, defend a non-national? How could they resist? So, this is, this is a, a, a real question. And the second question, the second puzzle, this is a statistical office. Why the statistical office didn't modify, didn't correct this answer? It could just uh, share, uh, the, so just say indeterminate, or just share the answer between values, categories, say one third, two thirds to Belarusian, to Ukrainian, to Polish, and they disappear, but not. They didn't do, do that. So it's it's a real question too. So, uh, so this was the, the, the question of my, my research, it was a small research, and I would say I was limited by, by the source. So I, I had access to central source, uh, and, uh, and, but I decided to keep on, and I, I, am, I follow, I would say, the, the institutional uh, explaining way. Why? Because I found reports. There was a report of the statistical office. Of course, he had to explain what's going on, what, what is it about. So there is the statistical office was disagree with the categories. He said in the next census we, we will have resolved the problem. <laughs> it's because the first census, but it, it disagreed. But it was not the only institution to decide. And I was interesting because often the statistical office is considered like a panoptic governing by numbers. Not. It's all, there is a lot of institution with a state institution with scientific legitimations. And it turns out that for the national statistics, the statistical office had to cooperate to work with another institute, the Institute of Nationalities. And I found a report of this institute about the issue of Tutaishi in the census. So it evidenced that the questions were discussed between experts, between scholars at the time. And the Institute of Nationalities defended another point of view. It decided that the, 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 the category must be published, must not, must be, um, published at, at per se, without uh, an argument, strong argument, that these populations living in the borderlands, peasant communities, that in real, the reality was that they were without national consciousness. And to declare a population without a national consciousness, it was not new. It was, uh, how do you say, uh, a common word. It's uh, in the peace conference, when you read the, the report of the expert about the uh, population of the Ruthenian population, for instance, they were qualified without national consciousness. It was very simple. A population without national consciousness has no voice. We decided. They had no place, no voice, no national consensus. And it was also meaning that the national consensusness is a process, a long process. So these, popula these populations are still changing. They will change because they are still integrated in states. So of course, it was political oriented. But we have to wait until they get the real national Polish consensusness, but just to respect it. And so the, it was so this, this reasoning and this reasoning win, won 
against the statistical office. And it was also my, my explanation of the, the, the publication of the category in the, in the census of 1921. And also in, in, in 1931, the statistical office explained in 31, they disappeared, but in 31, they don't disappear. There were more numbers than, than before. But there were, of course, of political reasons. It was in the borderland. It was a, the, a, a, a way also to, to let the population out of discussion between the other states. So there were both. But, but I would like, in, in my research, I go further because until this point, I give um, the, the, the explanation from the point of view of the institution. But I didn't answer the, the question, what about the population? <laughs> Are there really population without national uh, consciousness? Are there really population who identify with the place where they're living and with the changing place of where they, where they are? Who are the population? Uh, so uh, what does it mean to voice no place uh, for uh, uh, no, no, no national uh, be, be belonging? And I, I start to, to read a little about some explanation by uh, uh, mainly by Polish historian uh, like Jerzy Tomaszewski. Uh, I appreciate very much, but I was not very satisfied with the interpretation of the answer. They consider that uh, it was, so it's not wrong, but this only explained this answer as a strategy of these communities to avoid um, allegiance to, um, to a state by a national declaration, especially in these borderlands, because the population could fare to change. They were used to, 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 to change of dominations. Uh, and then it was a strategy to avoid uh, any uh, reac reaction and hostility of a new, new, new dominations. And, so, and there was also the interpretation, it's a manipulation by, by, by the state. But in the same time, I discover the, the research works of um, ethnologists. So uh, ethnologists uh, were also very interesting. So I don't know why, but by this European peasant communities at the periphery, it was um, the field of uh, ethnologists' work. And uh, two Polish scholars uh, had made a very significant uh, research on this population of Polesia. The one uh, was an uh, ethnologist of the past, of the interwar period, Josef Obrensky. It was a former student of Malinowski. He, he did his PhD in the London School of Economics. So it was a very good ethnologist and he made a very good uh, field work about the Polish population. And then in the present time, there is an, an linguist, ethnolinguist, uh, Polish one, Anna Engelking, and she did a lot of so of, through the language, she studied a lot in deep, really in the grassroots, this population. And both converge to um, to recognize peasant communities where the identification with the place where the people live is more important in the identity. It is a kind of identification. So I didn't develop more, but I was convinced by the argument. And, um, and that time I said, it's real, <laughs> it's not a construction. Of course, it was a convenient way to close my chapter because, um, because a, a real research uh, should have been um, keep on on the local source, but it was too much complicated for me. It means to look register, uh, maybe church register, uh, administrative local report in Russian, in, in language that I couldn't read. So it was too much complicated. And my chapter um, remains um, a demonstration, I would say, but uh, with some, some Results anyway. Thank you, but it also suggests that uh, more research should be done and, and is possible. So I think it's a it's a good way. You know, your 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 chapter, your article is a good way to open. You know, a new new research, not field, but you know, sort of ignite uh, research interests of other scholars in this category. And um, maybe very briefly uh, touching upon your your new research. 
which is on welfare association and, and social philanthropies in Eastern Europe. And given the focus of our podcast series, could you reflect on the impact of ethnic diversity in the region on the provision of welfare? How did access to welfare provisions depend uh, on the person's ethnic confessional status, if at all? Okay, um, so I must say that exactly um, this specificity of, um, I would say, multi-confessional, multinational um, Eastern Europe societies that are the reason of this new research on the welfare organizations. Um, I was interesting to um, to to uh, to study how uh, these uh, these different societies um, in this in this society divided society or stratified society or multiple societies um, the the welfare organization um, developed um, a different trajectory to the welfare states uh, how or how much uh, this uh, confessional and national belonging shaped the way to produce, um, I would say, a, a modern, uh, a, a large-scale um, organization of um, solidarity, redistribution, etc. I, I always used the word of culture of redistribution. So uh, solidarity and help are not mechanic. So uh, it, and. The issue of welfare, I would say it's help or solidarity uh, beyond the family, beyond the, the small groups. The, so this is a, the challenge of any, any state or province or to, to produce a large, at the, at the state scale, um, solidarity, help, redistribution, uh, etc. Et and um, my, I was also um, a very um, unsettled and satisfied with uh, the, the theoretical um, works uh, about the welfare state and its emergence um, and the, the, the works uh, based on concept uh, like those of um, Sping Anderson because um, with a lot of uh, typology of the welfare states because um, these strong uh, theoretical uh, works uh, uh, were built uh, exclusively uh, on the Western European countries, and um, and they, they they only they consider also a very strong and exclusive um, hypothesis to the emergence of a welfare state. It's a it's a quite a normative definition. So, of course, they are very strong. Uh, welfare state, it's uh, always in a liberal democracy, in a nation state, because they consider, they develop the argue that the nation is the best community to make the redistribution uh, efficient. So there is a lot of arguments, but they, they put it at the, they didn't uh, try to, to to, to open uh, the, the frame to, uh, to the Eastern uh, society. They, ex they excluded uh, a large part of Europe and of the world. And I think today we are discussing about global history, global welfare, and it's time to, 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 to think about um, a reconceptualization of the history of welfare organization uh, out of this model, so maybe to 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 read. Um, so this this was a, cha a challenging um, a challenging beginning of this uh, research, and it's still an ongoing uh, research. And I have just um, I don't have um, a definitive answer, and um, I couldn't really. Um, answer the issue of um, national belonging, because I'm working with um, the Polish uh, societies. And until now, uh, what I've um, collected, uh, it is material about um, association and philanthropies either uh, out of any uh, belonging, completely open, or confessional. Uh, organ uh, organizations, but I'm. Um, I think that in, in the future, in the, 
into the, 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 the developing of my research, I will find also the issue of nation uh, uh, with the, the welfare org organi organizations. But um, what I, I found very interesting and unexpected uh, with this um, Polish materials uh, about philanthropy and association is to find so a new associations created at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, which um, insisted uh, to be open to uh, uh, poor families, to children, to give care and help without consideration the nation or the confessions. So I was uh, very interesting to see how there were also um, a secularization in the welfare early in the 20th century in the Polish territory um, that, um, that took the issue of the social issue, the social question, as a way to overcome to uh, the, the national uh, belongings communities. And, uh, and it, it was, of course, um, associations created by doctors, biologists, so typical of the hygienist movement. But we see how they, they really express something, I would say, a, a, a kind of social citizenship. The social issue is common to all communities, to all confessions, and we have to, to be solidaire, to, to secularize. So I developed a lot about one association, Koplamleka, which insisted always about this openness to all, uh, all the children, all the confession. But in the same time, it's always more complicated as expected. The traditional um, associations, the charities, um, uh, whose um, distribution was uh, reduced to one categories of population. So Jewish, the, the Catholic, and maybe the other ones. They were probably uh, discredited by the new association, the philanthropy, but they transformed as well. <laughs> they adapted as well. They, uh, they, they appropriate new principle uh, to uh, redistribute, to help. So, so um, they, 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 they remain confessional by, with their ideals, the definition of charity, of giving, of helping. But when it came to, to, to distribute um, the provisions to the families and to the poor, they could be open. <laughs> So uh, it's, it's a, at the beginning, I was I had in mind an opposition, traditional charities and modern philanthropy and voluntary associations. And now I think there is there was a range of associations in a competitive relationship, of course, but claiming to be adapt to the, the social issue of the modern times. And um, I think it's interesting because I was thinking first the way of secularizations and modern citizenship. And I think maybe there is another trajectory without secularization in Eastern Europe. And I would, would like to take more into account the development of these confessional associations. They were powerful as far as it was, for instance, Catholic order, very powerful associations and transnational too, because the orders they were in Italy everywhere. So I think uh, I'm always looking for an alternative trajectory, but it's not uh, just secularizing or not, uh, it's probably more uh, complicated. But there are still another questions that remains if we want to really um, study uh, well the issue of welfare organization in Eastern Europe. This is a question of practice. What happened in practice? And uh, maybe there were criteria in this course, but in practice, it could be different. And um, at the turn of the 20th century, and then came the First World War, there were a lot of misery, a lot of groups uh, in precarity, uh, a lot of orphans, and, uh, and 
the, the, the demands of the populations, the pressure, the, the revolts uh, of the population were agreed. And I think that in some times the association changed and adapt because they were under the, the not to say the violence also of the social group when it came from, from uh, hunger, hungry of children, of poverty and misery during the First World War. They didn't want to hear about criteria, age, uh, religion. They just want to have food, to have care. And they make also the association changing. So it is um, a more um, interactive process of transformation than uh, we can believe when we just read the statute and the report of the associations. Um, so, and it is also a, a search of new source because I discovered in the archives there were a big register of population recorded. So there is also um, a way to make a social history of welfare organization, not only a public policy history with typology of laws and criteria, but really make a social history of this uh, social, um, social welfare. So I, I hope I answer <laughs> to the question. Thank you so much. This is fascinating. And, and we are looking forward to read more uh, based on, on this your, uh, new research. And we are running out of time, so perhaps I will just uh, jump to our last concluding question. You mentioned some uh, names already, uh, but could you perhaps uh, recommend uh, where can people go to learn more about the topic, perhaps like separately on statistics, uh, you know, on, on the statistical knowledge, and perhaps if you could, uh, you know, consider maybe some uh, interesting works on, on welfare, like social history of welfare, if you could uh, give any recommendations. Ah, you mean on, on this new, this last topic of welfare? You, it can be on either because uh, we spend a lot of time discussing uh, this, you know, the, the role of statistics uh, and maybe you could recommend some works on that too. Uh, on the role of statistics, ah, so I would recommend to, um, to read first of all the, the works research of the historian of science. If you read Lauren Daston, the, the historical epistemology, what is statistics? If you read Lauren Daston, Ian King, Theodore Porter, Porter, Trusty Numbers, Alain Desrosiers, maybe also Michael Eric Brion, you, you have all the epistemological uh, tools, categories to understand the use of any statistic, economic, national, ethnic, racial, where statistics could be used by dictatorship, but also by very liberal uh, the, the government. So you have to, it's important to start and also to, to have this epistemology. Number is not, essentialism is, uh, it's dangerous with race, nation, but it's also dangerous with technologies. There is no power of technology without <laughs> men and women, so without uh, uh, people so, uh, with, with power or not. But, uh, so this is my recommendation. Uh, thank you. And we perhaps will include uh, some links or, or suggestions for our listeners. Um, thank you so much, uh, Morgan, for joining us today. And it was my great pleasure uh, talking to you about all these diverse topics. Okay, thank you very much. I hope I was enough clear. It was not so easy to, uh, to speak uh, in this uh, foreign language uh, as I am in Poland, <laughs> right, to fight with another foreign language. But uh, I'm, I'm ready to, to, to answer also any question by email or by private email so yes we, we will include the, the details for our listeners. Ah, okay thank you very much thank you once again thank you